last of my strength, I pull something deep inside. Something deep inside. What are you doing? Please stop! Delay cryosleep! Delay cryosleep! These were these babies. These were they were lying. You ever walk into a room and forget why you did? You look round vaguely as your brain seems to lock up. Maybe you'll retrace your steps to try to jolt your memory. Then it hits you. Car keys, or phone charger, or whatever it is. And you get that brief surge of satisfaction. Or you don't, and the task remains just out of reach. An indistinct echo in your mind that you just can't shake. They say it's the doorways. They act as event boundaries. Your brain sees the room as a new environment, and the previous one gets filed away. Maybe a million years ago when you travel from a swamp to a forest and need to recall what plants wouldn't poison you, that way of thinking was useful. But when the two are divided by a mere corridor, it's less so. Anyway, Emmett Fisher was a brilliant architect of some repute. He'd made his mark by designing full-scale constructions of M.C. Escher drawings, infinite staircases and corridors feeding into themselves, maddeningly. He achieved it with a combination of perception illusions, curving lines that the eye saw as straight, spatial warping and other techniques. It made Fisher a household name, at least households with architects living in them. He was able to spin the fame into a series of lucrative building contracts. Though the customers were never quite happy with the result, stylistic, sure, but spatially never quite right. No matter how many signs they put up, people would still get lost, wandering the corridors, sometimes for hours. Eventually, Fisher retired quietly, his reputation crumbling, and embarked on his biggest project yet, his own home. A squat, brutalist estate deep among the pines of a nearby forest. Harsh angles and jagged lines of concrete blocks. It took Fisher five years to make it livable, but not finished. It was never finished. So began his long war with the local council, always demanding more planning permission, but refusing to provide accurate blueprints. He was constantly getting in builders of all trades to rip up walls, relay foundations, pivot ceiling beams. They say there were doors to nowhere, stairs with ever-decreasing rises, windows where no sunlight could reach them, corridors that curved off in such a queer way you couldn't be sure where you started. And more. He ensured that no one workman knew what the other was doing. The carpenter was ignorant of the bricklayer, who was ignorant of the electrician, who was ignorant of the surveyor, and so on. 
No one knew the full layout of the house, but Fisher himself. The city council grew frustrated and banned all further work until full and comprehensive applications were approved. All the union workers left. But soon after, around town, many unfamiliar faces appeared, with calloused hands and steel-capped boots. And they say if you drove past the Fisher place on a quiet night, you could still hear the toil of drills and hammers. Then one day, Fisher was gone. His publicist raised the alarm. No trace, no warning. A thorough search of his house was conducted. It took days. The police couldn't map it out. No two officers could sketch out the same layout. Complaints of headaches, nausea, and no success. The house fell into the ownership of his trust, vacant and boarded up. A curiosity. There were rumours, of course. The odd squatter or drifter disappearing in the area. Some cocksure urban explorer braving the labyrinthian corridors never to be seen again. Eventually, the council had enough and sent in the bulldozers. And so Fisher's life work was torn down, the mystery of his style reduced to piles of shattered bricks. Well, except one. Embedded into the foundation, they found a corridor that had led off from the main house. It spiralled in such a way and had such subtle curving to it, replete with many functionless doors, as to be mentally exhausting. That is to say nothing of what his total effect would have been when connected to the rest of the house. At the end of it was a plain wooden door leading into a cellar room. It's there that they found the bodies. Eight of them, at various stages of decomposition, lined up into orderly rows, spaced out neatly. All of them appearing to have died where they stood, slumped down. Vagrants, squatters, urban explorers. And on the left, top of the column, the oldest remains mere bones was Fisher. The autopsy report raised more questions than it answered. No signs of trauma, no slash marks, no restraints. The cellar door unlocked. All they could conclude, impossibly, was that each had entered the cellar months even years apart from the other victims and had simply stood in their place, motionless in the pitch black, until they collapsed from exhaustion and dehydration, then perished. Imagine walking a hall that stretches on far longer than it should. You enter room after room each an unfamiliar hue. You turn left 
and right and left and right until you can't remember the way back. You enter a room, a cellar. You can't remember why. You can't remember anything. Where Am I? Starring Lucy Mepstead. Written by Peter Gardner. Music by William Lamb. The term dark matter is a misnomer, and I'm under no doubt it'll be renamed the moment we actually observe it. The reason that most in the physics game hate the term is because it's suggestive of giant coal-black asteroids floating about in space somewhere, Rather than what it is, 95% of all matter and energy. All that we know and can measure is crammed into the remaining 5%, a very humbling statistic. This is a lecture I've delivered a thousand times, but I'm thrown off my stride by the repeated discreet buzzes of my mobile. I'm loath to check it in front of the students that I so often lambast for doing the same. I hold out till lunch, then read the flurry of texts from Tabitha in her typical excited mishmash of run-on sentences and half-formed thoughts. Once I've unscrambled them in my head, I go over the messages several times and realise the lecture I just delivered may no longer be relevant. I fly out for Switzerland the next day for the laboratory she partly runs that operates a mile straight down into the solid bedrock. Tabitha had been the hardest-working, keenest student I'd had in 20 years of teaching. She'd gotten fire scholarship, and the little family she had was barely worth the name. So it came to be that, as the semesters went on, that she drifted out of my professional bubble of academia, and Barb and I made her a fixture at holiday breaks and Sunday dinners. The two of us never said it out loud, but Barb and I had been unable to bear children, so the nature of our feelings towards Tabitha was obvious. She meets me in the arrivals lounge and drives me out. She catches me up on the two years it's been since we last had her round our kitchen table. I have not much to offer the other way. Barb is fine. The university is fine. The book is... as ever stalled. I watch her careen the rental car around the winding mountain roads of Switzerland and see such a flush of confidence within her as she delivers machine gun monologues about her colleagues, her postgraduate, the best cocktail bars in town. I feel a sense of pride flickering in me and snuff it away. Presumptions of an old fool. The lab appears nondescript when we arrive, disappointingly humdrum for a crusty academic who rarely gets to see the real action of what he's forever speaking on. This is until we step into the large industrial lift and the thick great shutter is pulled down 
and a klaxon is sounded. Then we begin the slow, assured drop into the earth. Meter after meter of clay and stone. Darkness creeping round the halogen bulbs, the air steadily crisping up with a windless chill. The lift reaches the bottom of the shaft with a shudder, and once the echo of that dissipates, I realise just how deafening true silence is. She shows me round with puppy-like glee. The rest of the staff are too busy for formalities. Then she shows me the tank, draped in cooling machinery. It resembles something more likely seen in an industrial farm to store nitrate fertiliser. But the form is deceptive. Inside is 500 gallons of purified water, and the heart of it is a tall, thin, black box, no bigger than a door, lined with a bank of the most sensitive particle detectors ever built. I remember when this device was just a theory, floating around the peer reviews many years ago. Elegant in its design, a simple answer to a frustrating question. If dark matter is so plentiful, yet so far undetectable, then it must be indistinguishable from the noise of the universe, light, radiation, gravity. The tank was built to circumvent it all. A dark matter particle sails through the earth, through the clay and rock, through the purified water that filters out the gunk of regular matter, and through the electrosensor. An exciting concept of the time, but five years of continuous operation, without a single positive result, had dampened it. Till three days ago. Tabitha brings up a tab on her laptop, and I feel a surge of electricity up my spine as I stare at the electromicroscopic image. A vague smudge of colour, fleeting yet undeniably primal. Elemental. Something that is so divorced from the stresses and forces of our reality that it has remained utterly unchanged since the moment the universe was born. It's truly beautiful, and I congratulate Tabitha with a warm embrace. She excitedly tells me this is just the start, then drags me past all the labs like a giddy schoolgirl to the conference room. The whole team are crowded in, and we elbow our way to the back. At the front of the room is a projector image, a live feed. Tabitha whispers in my ear. They've already sent over all the telemetry to their sister site on the other side of the world, which houses a state-of-the-art super collider. The sister lab have already created a synthesized approximation of the dark matter particle and are preparing to smash it into a hydrogen particle at 100,000 miles per hour as to completely study its nature. A hush falls. Through the stuttery feed we see technicians in starched white jumpsuits and face masks milling round the awesome machinery. A signal goes out. Everyone freezes. Alarm sound. Green lights click on and an otherworldly hum emanates from the speakers, filling the conference room. 
Then, just as suddenly, silence. It is over in less time than the eye could see it happen. They have it. A cheer goes up. Then the signal. The electro-microscope picture. Again the sparks along my spine. It is smashed into the hydrogen particle and opened up into a burning white flower of light. Then another picture, larger, twice the size. Then another picture, now four times the size. The growth seems exponential. Then it's, it's past the frame of the microscope. Then a new alarm sounds and the collider ruptures, spilling out nitrogen gas. Then the feed goes dead. A low shudder passes through our complex and the power dies. The emergency generator kicks in and bathes us in an eerily red glow. Then we hear the sound growing. An explosion unending. Like a new universe birthing into an old. Everything starts shaking. Monitors shuddering off desks and shattering. Glass doors warping and exploding. The walls grow and crackle. It's then I see dark matter for what it truly is. An echo. The mud imprinted with ancient animal tracks. The sediment leaked into a bone and taking its shape. Just the impression of what went before. Dead. You can't blend life with death. There should always be an intangible gulf between the two, and we just opened a door that cannot be closed. I look over to Tabitha, and her face is awash with fear. Instinctively, her hand grips mine. I yearn to protect her, but I know that I cannot. And the very selfish tragedy that I realise is that 13 billion years, I will have to see the terror in her eyes again. And again. And again. And again. On the Shadow's Edge, starring Darren Callow. Written by Peter Gardner. Music by Blue Dress Man. Too sleepy to think straight. No idea of the hour. Sheets tangled round me. Pitch black outside. A phone. Old school bell? Loud enough to squeeze through the brick walls. 
I grope the nightstand, knocking off the detritus till I find my watch. Just gone three. I wait for the answer phone to kick in. Eight rings. Nine rings. Ten rings. I get up. Glass of water, paracetamol. Fifteen rings. Sixteen. Put my ear to the wall. Definitely next door. I jam my earphones in. Well, music. It's just about working. Sound equalising, cancelling each other out. I start to drift. Mine's playing tricks. Brain can't tell up from down. I see the front door shake this time. Other end of the flat. It's 3am and there's someone outside my front door. I sidle up to it, arm myself with a Hello Kitty umbrella and ask who it is. It's Jeff. Listen, love, can you answer that bloody phone? I'm trying to get some kip. It's Jeff, from next door. Number 37. He wants me to answer my phone. Says it's keeping him up. I let him in and watch his face grow confused. We head over to his. I put my ear to his wall and it's just the same. The old-fashioned staccato vibration of a rotary phone. That's when I notice his flat. How it's smaller than I thought. That the kitchen should jut into my front room, but doesn't. I slow walk the corridor that divides us. Smack in the middle, I press my ear to the cold wall. Clearer than ever disbelief. Jeff from number 37 turns his disbelief into a cold rage and goes and gets his crowbar. The plasterboard comes away easily enough. Behind is naked red brick. And behind that, a door. Peeling paint, gaudy marbled windows and a rusted silver number plate. 37B. Not locked. We're hit with a gust of air so thick you could chew it. Tastes like a mulch of dead moth. The ringing is hard and true now, a heartbeat of brass and enamel. In the gloom, I see a light switch just inside and instinctively click it. The resultant light blasts open my irises, an old-school incandescent bulb. I'd forgotten what they were like. A shallow hallway... Greasy, yellowed, paisley wallpaper, like walking into a diseased artery, murmurations of dust. At the end of it is the last door. Peeking open, a slither of dense darkness. At this door, the must takes a sharp, unsettled edge, a smell of primal revulsion. Another light switch. Again, the painful blanche of incandescence, subsiding into the form of a modest sitting room. Threadbare carpet, thick oak drawers. A parlour table with a dense black rotary phone atop Nottingham lace. By it, on a wicker chair, sits a corpse.
The corpse wears a yellow summer dress. The eyes are crusty dried olives. The skin is taut brown apple flesh wrapped around angular bone. Jeff from number 37 gags. I pick up the receiver. Warm crackle. The creeping tide of someone's breathing. words fall to gentle sobbing till I place the receiver back and yank out the cable. Jeff from number 37 asked me what they said. I say, I wish they'd just put it in a letter. I move out before the month is up. Tell the landlord to keep his damn deposit. I had to. Too many late nights, half asleep, where I could still hear the ringing. Starring Stephanie Hazel, Neil James, and Tom Clear. Written by Peter Gardner. All episodes produced by Dan Scout. Sound recordist James Wingfield. Post production by Dan Scout and James Wingfield. Additional sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simons from SoundBible.com. For more information, plus previous and future episodes, please visit the iTunes Store or 2BitProductions.com. The whisper through the static.